Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, good morning. It's Friday morning. Uh, Tomorrow's already Tisha B'Av, and then it's a Nitra, of course. Um, and I wanted to say a few words about Tisha B'Av in the context of Jewish historical literature and rabbinic literature in a funny way. I want to thank uh, Abe Gluck and Gluck Plumbing for sponsoring this. It's very kind of at the last minute. And let me get to the body of my remarks. <laughs> uh, I noticed this when I pulled out in front of me two uh, recent uh, books that were out. One was the... Um, New Meshachachma, nice addition. It caught my eye. And uh, the other one is this uh, Abishit's business that I'll explain in a second. It's very good. Those of you listening will catch this on Friday morning. If you're interested in the kind of thing I'm talking about, I'll, I'll sell this book. I'll, uh, I'll push this book. Uh, this safer. Um, so what I'm talking about is as follows. The story of the um, destruction of Beis HaMikdash, Beis HaMikdash itself, is well known. But at the very beginning, you have the famous Pasik Echa Yashov, Adorira Basiam, Haisal Kamana, Sarasi Bamdinos, Haisal Amas. There's a lot of Chazals on it and so on and so forth. And uh, I was, uh, last year I bought a this book that came out, which is a collection of all the stuff from Yonis and Apeshits, there's various writings arranged according to Echa and Tishbab stuff. It's called Zaakas Ubenechamas Yehonasan. Right, Zakasri published by Zerpostkin. And uh I happen to be an Abishitz fan. I'm into his stuff. And Yaris Bash and a lot of other things. And so I got it. I actually lost it because I looked around, can't find it this year. So there are various possibilities that strike the mind, but whatever it is. And um they collected very ni- in my opinion, very nicely from his various writings that have to do with the Corbin. And Rionis and Abishitz. You always get unusual and unexpected stuff as far as I'm concerned. And sometimes I mention Chachm as well, as you'll see in a second, I hope. And uh, when I say unexpected stuff, Yonah Zabeshitz was an unusual guy. He, I don't know how, but he picked up some kind of secular education because he was a lawyer, among other things. Uh, at the same time as being a big Rashiba and all the rest of it, the Bakobo. And he was clearly interested in history, not in an academic, university-trained way, but he knew more than the average bear, you know. And here we have the question of where do we get our stories about Tishabab. Now, there are a few Gemaras. Ebony is Kamsa by Kamsa. And, you know, you could go a little bit more, of course. There's an officer of Nosan, there's a this, there's a that. There's the Medrash Onecha uh, in certain places. You know, notice you can collect from rabbinical tales, but by no means uh, a history of the war of the Jews against the Romans, which took five, six years. If you go all the way to Masada, then even three years if you go up to Chorban Beis HaMikdash. And the details and all the rest of it. The guy who has that is Flavius Josephus, Yosef ben Matisio, who uh, was a, who wrote a history book called The Jewish War. And he was a Kohen, and he ended up, you know, switching, when he saw that the Jews are not 
still have a Chinaman's chance for winning, he switched to the Romans, uh, which is nothing but Rabbi Yochum Zaka did the same thing. You know, people are dissing him, whatever. And uh, after the war was over, he came back with Titus to Rome. As far as we know, he spent the rest of his life in Rome. He's a Jewish guy, right? And in Rome, he wrote his books, the first of which being the Bella Judaica, the Jewish War. So he was writing it in Rome, and he got a pension from Vespasian and Titus. So basically, his monthly check, Social Security, was like a special Zach, and they expected him to write pro-Roman. He wrote a history of the, of the war, which it is pro-Roman, but it's, it's still good. Meaning, you know, he has to kiss up to them here and there, but not so much. And it's a very complicated story of how much reliable is and not reliable. Uh, the firm writers sometimes diss him and all the rest of it. It's not, I know what they mean, but it's not 100% true. And overall, the bad stuff he says about the Jews was true because the, the Gemara says the same thing. Okay? The Gemara says the same thing. So you accept that Josephus goes into much greater details in terms of the sadism that the Jews practiced in each other. It wasn't just that they killed each other, they tortured each other, they shoved things up people's rear It's terrible. You understand? It's you know, really bad. It reminds us of what the Arabs do to each other in these civil wars in Syria and Iraq and all these things. There is no torture that hasn't been tried. So unfortunately, the Jews did that also. Now, Josephus wrote his book, as far as we know, it's not 100% clear in Greek, um, which was the language of the Middle East, even in the time of the Roman Empire. In other words, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, what we call the Eastern Mediterranean, so even though it's ruled by Rome and the Romans speak Latin, but Greek had been the language there, and even under the Romans it remained the main language. So Josephus did not write in Latin, but he did write in Greek, as far as we can tell. Yeah, some say he wrote in Aramaic, whatever. And this book already came out, you know, way back when. And to tell you the truth, it gave the Jewish point of view, even though, you know, with a spin. Now, it was in Greek. Did the Chachamim know about it? Not know about it? They must have known about it to some degree. But as is often the case in rabbinic literature, they're not gyrosit. You know, that's the way they deal with it. Like the firm world today with all these things. They're not gyrosit. Right or wrong, this and that, but that's how it goes. Now, Many centuries later, uh, many centuries later, there appeared Yosifun. So somebody was familiar with Josephus, but he wanted to write it in Hebrew and touch it up and change it, make it a little more palatable for Jews. And so that's Yosifun. It's not identical to Josephus. Many people think it is, but that's just wrong. And um, it's a certain version of it. Among the people who disagree with what I just said, right, because the fact that there was a, a Josephus was known to the Roshonim already, and even before that. The fact that there's a book out there now called Yosifun was not only known, but used by Rashi and all the Roshonim and the Achronim. Yosifun became a, like a, a famous safer. So, if you had any kind of an education... And many Rishonim did remember it. Some went to college or the equivalent because they were doctors and so forth. The equivalent. So they knew stuff about Christianity. And the Christians hold that Josephus is almost like a saint, you know. For, he has nothing to do, by the way, with Christianity. 
but it's a, it was a very chashu but safer by then, Josephus. And so Ramban, this one, that one, Abarbanel, they all know there's a book out there called Josephus, but we Jews also have a book called Yosefun. And so the way they squared that was to say that this guy wrote two books, one for the Goyim and one for the Jews. It's not actually true, that's the way they saw it. And therefore, if you see discrepancies, as you will see, in the version in Josephus, not identical with Yosefun, you'll say this is what he wrote for the Goyim, and this is what he wrote for the Jewish uh, audience. So the real from books will say, uh, uh, Ben-Gurion Laromian. This is what Yo- Yosef Ben-Gurion, that's what he called him. His name was not Yosef Ben-Gurion, but in Yosefun, that's the way they called him. His real name is Yosef ben Matisio. Whatever. So, I'm looking over here in this uh, book, the Sefer, which collects all stuff from Yonas and Abishitz, and he has a nice piece um, in terms of Bias Rishon, Bias Shani. Okay? Now again, another very interesting thing we'll see this morning is that we have the Sefer Eicha, and obviously it's written by Yermio talking about the Bais Risha. Because he was a witness there. The prophet Jeremiah was in jail, actually, during the Babylonian siege. The king of Judah had put him in jail to protect him from the nobles of Judah who wanted to kill him. So when he describes seeing people dying in the street and all that from starvation, I mean, he's looking at his, his cell. You understand? And when the city fell to the Babylonians, they took him out of jail and they treated him covet. That's the story of Yemiyot. So when he's talking about all the Sukkim, he's talking about Bayesrishan. In spite of that, the way Chazal have always taken him in the Jewish tradition is to say they was also speaking prophetically about Bayesheni. Even though they don't say so, but from the Gemara and everywhere you can see totally that the uh, Midrashim they always apply Sukkim in the uh, Sefer uh, Echab to events from the War of the Romans by Shani and even Bar Kochva. Okay? If you do Medish Rabbah in Mashal, I have a minute every year for an hour, hour and a half before Mincha to do uh, Medish uh, Echa. You know? And which the Shulchan Aruch recommends, by the way. Anyhow, you can go through the Pesukim and you'll see they always apply to Bar Kochva or to the War of the Korban. Things like that. So keep that in mind. Now, um, but there were two korbans, so you can read the pasuk as applying to bias risha. It's also part of the rabbinic literature. You can read it as applying bias sheni also. Now, what's the difference between bias risha and bias sheni? Ordinarily, you'll say like this: Well, Shlomo Melch built bias risha. He was loaded to the gills, and therefore he built fancy delishmancy. Then came Bayashani, which was El Chipo. And then Herod, Hordus, rebuilt it very nice. Was Hordus rebuilding better than Shlomo's or not? You know, how would they know that? We all know the Gemara, or you guys out there know the Gemara in um, Baba Basra at the beginning. What do you tell about Hordus? And say so whoever didn't see the Bayas, so Hordus never saw a beautiful building, and so forth and so on. So, um, the Gemara has its discourse, and the historian Josephus has his discourse. But if you're Jonas and Ancients, you know three things, A, B, and C. You know all the Gemaras. You know Yosifun. And he also knows Josephus. So he could, somehow or other, he could read German or something like that, because I'm sure he didn't read it in Latin or in Greek, Jonas and Ancients. Daddy didn't know. 
but Germany knew. And um, he made his business, obviously, to uh, to read Josephus. I don't believe, I could be wrong about this. I'm not going to go research it. I don't believe Josephus, not Yosephon, I don't believe Josephus was translated into Hebrew in the time of Apeshitz. Maybe I'm right, maybe, maybe, I could be wrong about that, but I think I'm right. Um, when was Josephus translated? Uh, but nevertheless, he says like this. Uh, I'm reading from Yom from the Yaris Tavash, from this Sefer that is an anthology of it. Ben Gurin Laromiim, Josephus in his book for the Goyim, Pirashal Pasek, Godol Yabayis Vachem Erishon. There's a famous uh, tradition in Chagai, the Sefer Chagai, where it says the second house would be better than the first. Now, what does that mean? So the usual way you translate it, the simple, easy way of translating is, Bayis Rishon was 410, Bayis Shein 420. We've all heard that. So Godol Yeh means numerically. Okay? Uh, to say Bayis Shein only lasted 20 years, you have to get involved in those chronology problems. <coughs> what we call the Persian Gulf, the missing 168 years. It's a problem. I'll be Pashtus history, and in Josephus, the Bayashani lasted something like 570 years, something like that. A lot more than 410. But according to, to Seder Olam, if you go with the from the calendar, so there'll be 420. So Bayash region 410, Bayash region Shani 420. But the Gemara says, I'm reading now from Apeshitz, Darshul Chazal and Baba Basra, Shakaya Bayashani, Behordas, Below Bayashlishi. Then it says, Godol Yakavada Bayash Achran Rishon. He's not talking about Mashiach time, but he's talking about the second temple. Right? So it's interesting. As I said before, this is a spin. If you ask me regular, you say, when was the base of Migdash bigger and more chasha? In the time of Shlomo Melch or in Baishani period? So you say, look at Shlomo. The guy was loaded. Everything was gold. The Queen of Sheba came to check it out. It says something like the Malchayars used to come. It sounds like Yerushalayim was like a cosmopolitan city in time of Shlomo. But Zakhtabashit says it's not true. Bayez Risha was much less than the Bayashani in terms of its fame, which I consider to be very interesting. If it's fame. So it says that Zel Rov Maloso Enlo Erch Viyachas Klala Bayez Risha. In terms of its grandeur, its Milo. Bayashini was much bigger, right? Bulan Bigmarin is chatim b'mer gadol merishon. Now Digmar is asking how's the how's the second bigger than the first? Digmar says it's it's numerical. For Yosef and Alba Josephus, the Yesim of Farshim Pirush was there. They wrote and they lived before the Gemara, and he was there to Chorban. Kiba Bayis Rishon, they explained it as follows. In other words, this is the point of Jew. A view of Jews who lived in the time of Bayashani. And that was especially the sec the last part of Bayashani. Kibabayas Rishon Lo Yotza Shame Habayas Bakabur Tehila Bani Malchiaris. That when the time of Bayas Rishon, when you had Shlomo, but then after Shlomo fell into the kingdom of Judah, it was much smaller. As you know and I know, Basimikish went through ups and downs. The kingdom of Judah was a tiny little malucha. And as far as we can tell, it didn't have any ashba whatsoever out there in the rest of the Middle East. The opposite. The Gaisha culture is penetrated into Judah, not the other way around. That is the story of Malachim and Dere Yaman, That they're always worshipping idols in one country or another. One country or another. Even Shlomo HaMelech, we're told, 
build churches or his life allowed his wife to build churches to these stupid little gods, Kamosh, the milk home. You know what I mean? In other words, it's not like to to even like to a, a universal god like Zeus or something like that. These stupid little things were more because he married women from these countries he built it. Again, it says the Shlomo had these churches built on on Harazasim, which is across the street from our Har- Harbias. We've had some interesting times. And if you again if you read the book of Mochan, these churches remained there in use until Yoshio, hundreds of years later. So Bias Risham, it seems, was a time when the Geisha stuff penetrated us, not the other way around. It's not recorded, at least, that Geisha kings used to offer carbonus as a matter of respect in the in base of Migdash and Bayis Rishon in the kingdom of Judah. Um, because the Jews were not scattered elsewhere, nobody knew about them. Bayis Rishon was a period when all the Jews lived in Israel, you know, like it's normal in a regular country. There was no diaspora, at least not that we know. Am I saying that there was not a single Jew lived outside of Eretz Yisrael, King Yehuda, King Yisrael? Can't say that. But Ruba the Ruba the Ruba. Most Jews lived in, in the Eretz Yisrael, in Bayez Risha. Kilo Yotza, TV, so the Goyim literally did not know much about the Jewish religion. And the paganism was at a low level. Right there in the Trophim and Keshuvim. They actually believed in that stuff. Avo, Babayashani. And again, I'm reading this is just in the Aristavash from Yosemish, it's not me. Babayashani. Call Malachim, Begoyim, Rabbim, Kulu, Kibdo, Abayas. The Menachim is for Carbonus, the Doronus. You'll find the Babayashani was Persia, Greece, Rome. These are what you would call superior cultures. They're pagan, that's true, but they're superior cultures. What are you going to compare Moab and Edom and all the stupid junk with the Greeks, with the Romans, with the Persians? Come on. Right? And they respected the Temple of the Jews in Jerusalem because of the monotheistic idea. And nevertheless, they, um, what do you call it? used to bring Carbonus. As a sign of respect for the Jewish religion, Vain Sarklomer, Kesa Romi, Augustus, Julius. This I'm reading from Abishitz, right, and the others. Babonasia Robin. As a matter of fact, and with this, I'm surprised because Abishitz usually makes a whole pimple out of this. But I'm giving you those of you who are interested in coming up with the Devar Torah for Shabbos. Listen to this closely. So we know that in the second temple, unlike the first. The kings and queens and junk like this of the world used to offer carbonus the basic mix. Now, not only there, and they doesn't mean that they're Jewish, but they had respect, you see, for the Jewish idea. And that actually, very weirdly, led to the Chorban, if you go by the Gemara, Bavonosina Rabin, Sebas Kravis Carbon, a Chorban from Bar Kamsa. We all know the story of Kamsa Bar Kamsa. He got angry, he told the Romans, Give me a carbon, and he cut the, the lip or whatever he did, the eyeball. And the result is they wouldn't take the, uh, they would not offer the carbon offered by Caesar, by the emperor, and that was the revolt. So it was a major diss, right? Here, Gaisha emperor is offering a carbon, 
That's a big covet for a small, helpless people like the Jews. And the Jews say no. That was exactly what Kamsa by Kamsa we wanted to accomplish. And uh, that led to the Korban. Okay? Now, again, this idea is not just a Vart in the Yonis and Apeshitz. Uh I happen to remember. Uh, let me see if I can find it. Hold on for a second. Okay, here it is. I pulled it out. Uh, here's a letter from the time Basin Mitch was standing that's included in the book by Philo Judea, Judeus, who was a contemporary Josephus a little earlier. And he's writing about this story. So in other words, this is a book being written about the year 30 or 40 or so, something like that. And Basin Mitch was story in the year 70. So, um, and Philo was a Jewish writer and a philosopher and, and a political leader in Alexandria in Egypt. And I talked about this once before. This is the time of the Emperor Caligula. Without going through the whole Misa, suffice it to say that the Jews did something that ticked off Caligula with a nut. And he wanted his um, statue to be put in Kodesh Kadoshim. And the Jews said he wouldn't do it. And Caligula basically said, then kill all the Jews. Enforce my um, decree and wipe out the Jews. And uh, yeah, he was a crazy nut, so he could do it. And there was, um, at that time... Living in Rome was Herod Agrippa, just to be the grandson of Herod, Hortus, who uh, is the Agrippa's Amelk that you find in the Mishnah. Remember, he's the one who said Achinuato and all that. And he and, and Caligula were old friends from the time when they were party animals. I mean, we are talking about Rome during the period of the toga parties. And uh, there's all these college uh, wild things are imitating Caligula. So basically, and he wrote him a letter saying, don't do it, but in a very nice way. And the story is that the letter was written in such a way that it could even appeal to Caligula, be it or not. And had certain things not developed, that would have caused Caligula to change his mind and, and withdraw the Xera. But other things intervened, it's a whole Gansa story. So, in his book called Embassy to Caligula, um, written by um, Philo in Greek, uh, remember he's a from Jew, so he says that Agrippa wrote a letter to, uh, to uh, Caligula, and he includes the letter. And in there, there's a whole long business where you see that Agrippa was a bucky in the Roman psychology. And the Romans, even Caligula, were very much into antiquity and, and honoring the traditions of the predecessors and so forth and so on. And so he says, look, all your predecessors gave COVID to the temple and never intervened and tried, didn't try to put an uh, idol in it. Adrava and they all respected it. And he even talks about his, his, his predecessors and then he gets around to uh, Augustus Caesar, the first emperor, which is his great-grandfather. And he said, this is the case in Tiberius. And what did your great-grandfather, I repeat, this is the Jewish guy writing to the Roman emperor. What did your great-grandfather, the most excellent of all emperors that ever lived on earth, he who was the first to have the appellation of Augustus given him on account of his virtue and good fortune, Augustus who diffused peace in every direction of the earth and sea, to the very extremities of the world, knows the great Roman emperor. Did Augustus, when he heard a report about the particular characteristics of our temple in Jerusalem, and that there is in it no image or representation made by hands, no visible likeness of him who is invisible, meaning of God, no attempt at any imitation of nature, there is no about his at all. Did he not, I say, marvel and honor it? Let me be more exact. Nafshat, there's no Avodah Zarah, because you could have an, an idol of God, 
But we don't even have that. So he marveled at it. And he honored it. Even though as Roman emperor, Rome is full, chock full of idols. But he could chop. And he could respect that there's a religion out there that understands God to be beyond description. No, there's even a pagan like Augustus will say, the idols we have are not mamish the gods. They're images to help us understand the higher gods. Now, maybe uh, dumb Romans thought that the idols are gods, but intelligent ones not. So it's a little bit like, let's say, for example, if you go to Rome today, it's chock full of idols. So an intelligent Catholic doesn't believe that the statues are God, but they're images, you see? Now, notice they're to help you. and But really, really, from a philosophical point of view, uh, the idols are, are not necessary. It's actually better to conceive of God as beyond description. For he, and, and in other words, and he honored and, and, and marveled at it, the temple uh, in Jerusalem. For as he was imbued with something more than a mere smattering of philosophy, in other words, Augustus, he's saying, was a thinker, an educated guy. He deeply feasted on it, meaning he was into philosophy, and he continued to feast every day, and he traced all his recollections, precepts of philosophies which he had learned, and he kept his learning alive by always having literary men around him at his banquets. So, as such, he could say, you know, the idea of a, a temple with, with, with the Kodesh Gadashim with nothing in the room is actually very sublime. You see? And my point is that even Goyim, the, the higher level of them, could hop that a Beis which is the absence of all images, is actually, from a philosophical point of view, something very chashub. Their own culture was one in which they had images, but they could get it. And therefore, this is something that was characteristic of the Bayashani, he says, and not of the Bayashrishon. And therefore, if an emperor or somebody like that sent a carbon and paid for a carbon, which they did, you know, the, the Roman emperors uh, paid for a daily uh, carbon in the base of Migdash. Daily carbon. So what it means is, I'm an emperor of a large empire, and I respect all the different religions. I also respect the Jewish religion. But if you want to take that one level higher, then what you say is, I respect the concept that is contained in a fancy temple with no images, which is the higher and more philosophical conception of God, which is, you know, intellectually and therefore theologically a very hush of a concept. Zoktavshus, this is Godel Yabais Hashani Yosem Menarishan, or rather Josephus. Godel Ben Abais Hashani Yosem Menarishan. That's what it means. Okay? Bezel Mor Bezek Kabad Kvodish Komlochi Chabdeo. Like I said, you know, from a populistic drusha thing, I'm sure somebody can build a nice drusha that why Dafka was that the cause of the Korban Bayashani. Uh, maybe you can say like the Satmar, you know, the hell with the Goyim. The fact that they were off in Corona is a bad thing. I don't know. Uh, I could, if I sat down and thought about it, I could, could come up with something. And therefore, Yonas Eivshitz, in his style, says that the first Pesach, one Pesach is talking about Yisrael, one is talking about Yisraeli, right? And um, it says, Rabbosiyam, the Medrash says, Rabbosiyam of a low Rabbosiyam. It was Rabbosiyam that the Bayes Rishon, in his interpretation, was chash among the Jews, but not among the Goyim. 
and that's a Yashba Badad. But in Bayashani, Sarasi Bamadinas, that even the Gaim knew about and respected it, and now it's Haisal Mas. So it's a fort. But it's uh it's showing you that he's aware of the historical development that the Jewish religion itself uh, had a very interesting spread in the Bayashani period in a way that didn't happen by Bayashrishan period. And by Shani period, there was a lot more Gayrim, 100% conversion, semi-conversions. The diaspora existed where Jewish communities were all over the place. And they spread the knowledge of Judaism uh, out there, including the knowledge of their temple. Because all the Jews who lived all over the Roman Empire used to send money. And as you know, they invented davening. And part of the davening is you face towards Yerushalayim. And you pray every day for the temple. Not exactly identical to the Shemun Esri today, perhaps. But nevertheless, at the core of Shimon Esri is all that stuff of Liu Shlaim Ircha and Samach David and Ritzay Hashem and Biamcha Yisrael and so forth. So these are core elements within Judaism and they became known in a wider way. Now, certain pagan traditions clashed with that and the result of the Mishmash and the clash is what we call the rise of Christianity during this period. But I'm not getting into that. I'm simply pointing out that when it comes to Tishabov, it's interesting that as time went on, and based on Migdash's went on, that the first one went down, and the second one was built. And the second one went down in the sense that Hordus rebuilt it. And when Hordus rebuilt it, he built it super fancy. And the super fancy third temple, which was Herod built it around the year one approximately, a little before that. So it was only around for 70 years. But it was fancy, the Lashmancy, and the Goyimal heard about it also. And this is one way, not the only way, it's one way of spreading you know, the knowledge of the Torah and all the rest of it. But like I said before, it was done in a very hot plop way. And the result, honestly, I don't mean to be funny about this, the result was the rise of Christianity, which was a halfway between paganism and Judaism, half and half, halfway. Uh, which, of course, as we know, took off and eventually triumphed in the Roman Empire. I, I think everybody knows that. Uh, later on. So you have this notion of based on so let's put it this way. You have three temples. Shlomo, Ezra, Hordas. Each one represent speaking historically you now. It's not a part. Speaking historically each one represented a, a raising of the notch in terms of its, its fame spreading among the Goyim and therefore an increase in the PR for monotheism. Which is actually what the base mission is supposed to be. So in the Bayes Rishon less, the second temple more, and the third temple by Hordus even more. Which is mashma that when the next temple is built, in other words, when you have the Geula, it'll be even more. Well, that's how we understand Taka, the Mashiach time. Right? And you know, they say the Mashiach was born in Tishabab and all that stuff. The the next temple you can call Bayes Shlishi, you can call it Bayes Ravi, however you want to refer to it, depending on how you assessed the Herod Temple, uh, which I say again was there for the last 70, 75 years. That's all it lasted. Uh, represented an increase in the fame of the monotheistic idea. And uh, what it means, of course, is that going at that time, the intelligent ones, they said, I've been to Alexandria, I've been to Rome, I've been to Athens, I've seen this goddess, and that one, and that one, and that one. And then come Yushalayim, you see a, a Greek-looking temple because the base of Mishra rebuilt by Hordus was a Greek temple, but totally absent any paganism. So you have 
You have the Greek architecture, which is really chashev, but yeshkem b'olishem, there's no idols. Nothing like that at all. And that seems to be the perfect combination. Uh, it's just very interesting ideas, which is perhaps why it seems the Romans were reluctant to destroy it, uh, but their anti-Semitism overcame everything and they did destroy it. Uh, that's a separate complex question I don't want to get into now. Now, from that, I transition into what originally caught my attention, that's the Meshach uh, who, for whatever reason, is choosing to interpret the first Pesach as talking about Baishani, not Baish Rishon. Uh, even though, and he says, Sarasi Bamadinos, in a most unusual way. Usually you say it's the princess of all the nations. As that's what Yonah Samshu was just saying, that the fame of monotheism spread it was renowned among the Goyim. Bayesrishan was not. Bayesheni was. That's what he said. According, But you can spin it. According to the Meshach and I'm actually holding the Cooper one, one here in my hand, even though I should do the other one, but I wanted to see what the footnotes say by the Cooperman for a reason. He says, the Meshach says, and again, it's most unusual, most interesting. Sarasi Bamadinas means that uh, they kissed up to the Goyim. So Rosy Bamadinas, they, how's the right, what's the right way of saying it? It's a very funny shot, and I'm doing my best to do justice to it. Because it doesn't really fit in the words. On the other hand, the Meshachah is Meshachah. So Rosy Bamadinas means they want to be friends with the Goyim. Okay? Now, what does that mean? So basically, he's reading the pasuk. That's one thing, and then so so the meshachah wants to learn that the second half of that pasuk is response to the question raised by the first half of the pasuk. Because the first half of the Pesach is a question. How could it be this great uh, city is now alone? How can they dwell alone? A city that was once full of people. I mean, it's, that's literally what the Pesach means. And he wants to say, now, usually you understand that poetically, rhetorically. It's a repetition of the first part of the Pesach, right? That's how we usually translate it. How could it be the great city is now nothing? So Rossi Bamdinus, how could it be that the city that was a princess among the nations, Hoysalamas, is now garnished? But he's saying no. Very literish, you know. The answer is Sarasi Bamadinus. So what does that mean? So here, that's his reading of it. And here he says as follows. Who destroyed the base of Megiddo? The Romans. How did the Romans get involved in Israel? We brought them in. We brought them in. What does that mean? Everybody knows, I think, that if you want to get down to the physical way how the Romans penetrated in Israel, it's as follows. It's a bad story, but it happened. You had the Maccabean revolts. It used to be that Israel, Judea, was under the Greeks, the Seleucids. 
Then there was the Maccabean revolt, which in the long run was successful. And the Jews kicked out the government. As a matter of fact, the Maccabeans and the Hashmonim, their successors, went on to reconquer all the Eretz Yisrael. But they, as always happens with the Jews, the stupid Jews, once they beat the Goyim, they start fighting with each other. So the Hashmonim, which is the children of the Maccabees and the grandchildren, they were able to build up an army. And not only were they able to maintain the independence of Judea, which is, you know, the province around Yerushalayim is a separate Jewish state, but they were able to conquer militarily um, the rest of the country north. So uh, what we call today Shomron and the Galil, and even Avery Yarning. So it was a big Medina. But that was the period of the fights between the Prussian and Sadukim, the civil wars. I don't know if you know about this or not, but civil wars broke out between the Frum and the Nafrum, and tens of thousands of Jews killed each other. It's sad. And the situation, and there were ups and downs, there's Yana and then Shlomitzion and all this. And then it came to a point where there were two contenders for the throne, two brothers, Hyrcanus Aristobulus. I'm simplifying. And they got into a civil war over who should be the top dog, who should be the king. The Frum, if you follow the story closely, it's hard to follow this, but this is where you get Doris Rishonim, he's actually good at this part. Or if you prefer a Victor Mo, you get the Torah Nation book, you can read it there. And the Frum wouldn't have nothing to do with either of these two brothers, because they were only, they were both Sadukim and they're into their own uh, power and glory. But in the course of this civil war, between Team A and Team B, both of which stunk, it so happened, unfortunately, that at that time the Roman Empire was extending up to the borders of Israel. In other words, the great Roman general Pompey, who was a great general, was in the process, in the aftermath of the Mithridatic Wars, of conquering what you and I today call Turkey, and then moving into Syria, which he took over at one bit. And if you own Syria, you're up to the border of the Galil. And it so happened just at that time that two brothers were fighting each other for the throne in Judea, in Eretz Yisrael. And both sides appealed to the Romans to come in and help. And Pompey, being a Roman, he very cynically chose Team B over Team A, whatever it was, chose Hyrcanus over Aristobulus, for his own purposes. And that from then on, Eretz Yisrael was under control of the Romans. Because Pompey said that Team B should rule. And when Team A didn't agree... He invaded the country. Team A under Aristobulus actually holed up in the base of Megdash as a fort. Um, Pompey conquered Jerusalem and conquered the base of Megdash, but he did not destroy it. Okay, He just carried off Aristobulus in prison and he put in Hyrcanus as the king and the high priest, or high priest actually. And from then on, the Romans were there and you couldn't get rid of them. Okay? You cannot get rid of them. Uh, and this led to the Chorban. Now, there's a great tragedy of Roman-Jewish relations, and that is that the Romans, with their externalist look, and their, you know, they're all into bribery and power and cynicism and all, that's who they were. Uh, they didn't realize that the best deal they could have cut was with the Chachamim. If they would have put the Frum in power, you know, the Frum were not interested in wars and glory and this kind of stuff. They just want to have, be alone in Israel. So basically... If they would have hooked up with the Frum, with the Shem Ben Shatak types, or, all, or after Shemayin of Talion. So, uh, you would have had the, Israel as a Frum country. The Roman army would control it. I mean, you know, from the point of view of foreign policy, 
The Romans could march through and do whatever they want. Just leave the Jews alone. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, they would have to pay taxes to Rome. All right. All right. The, the fact is, Israel has never been an independent country. The state of Israel today is not really an independent country. Look how we go crazy every time there's a new president, because you don't know. You know, you don't know. We all rely, like I said last night in my podcast, you're basically hoping Leib Sarn be out of Sham. You know? You don't know. Um, yeah, but one bad president, who knows where it could go? You see? So, Israel has never been luxury of moms being independent. That's why I said yesterday, he said, either you trust in Hashem, or you trust in politicians. You trust in politicians. Let's see how that turns out. <laughs> right? So anyway, uh, in this era, the Romans didn't hop, that if they would have teamed up with the Frum, then Beis would still be here today, and the Judaism would still be here today, and the Jews simply would have been, you know, on the, part of the Roman Empire. All right, all right. But instead, it didn't turn out that way. And they played with one team over another team of Sadukim. And they ended up getting into a real mafia situation with Herod and the Herodians. If you're interested in this, I have a, a series I did. must be on the podcast years ago. Um, I did, um, what was it called? From Hanukkah to Tishabob. Long ago. Like four or five talks. And they go through all the history of this period. That's actually, if you haven't heard it, that might be a thing you want to hear over the weekend. Uh, it's a sad story, but that's the story to, of how you get Hanukkah to Tishabov. And anyway, the point is that the Jews themselves invited the Romans in, and it's basically bringing a cancer into your own uh, body. That That's what it was. Now, um, this is actually a from theme. Why? I mean, let's put it this way. That's in Josephus. No, it's also in Yosifan. And there's a famous Ramban in Parsha Vayishlach, which is fairly well known. And it's a take on the story of Vayishlach, Yaakov, Malachim, Aleisav, Achiv, Komar, Yaakov, Komar, Avdechal, Yaakov, Imlov, and Garti. Right? So, Yaakov is terrified of Esau, and Yaakov abases himself. And he says, Call my Abdechal Yaakov and kiss up to him. You know, we all know that story. And the Chazal, by the way, condemn Yaakov Avina for this. It's a very famous medrash. Tzadik Mot Lufne Russia, something like that. Machzik Bosnik Kelev Ish Overall Misabal Rivlo Lo. It's a very famous medrash at the beginning of Yishlach. And it was a mistake of Yaakov, in other words, to do this. And because um, because Esau was actually leaving Israel at that time and so forth. Uh, and the Ramban, who's always into the idea of myself as Simla Vonim, says there at the beginning of Yishlach that this was unfortunately a foreshadowing when Yaakov kissed up to Esau, invited him to his life. Because what was the result, by the way? Listen closely. What was the result of Yaakov sending presents to Esau and abasing himself before Esau? The result was Yaakov was permanently crippled. That's the Gedanosha. So lay all your You understand? Now, if Yaakov simply would have said, I have been talking, I'm going to Israel, heck with Esau, Hashem will take care of the whole thing. 
He never would have had, a, you know, to divide his camp. He never would have been alone. He wouldn't have been jumped by the Sashalazel. And we wouldn't have the Gidanusha situation, which Chazal always interpret as saying that that's a partial victory of Esau, that there, that there are many Jews who will be, you know, because Gidanusha means they hit him downstairs, punch him downstairs, and that means that, you know, his children, get it? You know, his descendants would, would include people who either killed in Dor Shmad or would convert willingly to Esau's religion and things like that. So it's all due to the fact that he invited the cancer in, as I said before. Now, and yeah, and Ramban very famously says, "Al daiti, gamze yirmos ki anachnu hischalnu nefilosenu biyad Adam." We're the ones who started our fall in the hands of Adam, meaning we shouldn't have brought the Romans in lechatchilah, and then things would have been different. Ki malchi bayis sheni bo bebrisim aromim, that the kings of the second temple. By which he means Judah Maccabee and his successors. So this is all in the book of Maccabees. As Josephus mentions also. And it's in the Apoc- no, it's in the Apocryphal Book of Maccabees. And it's in Yosiphon. You see? So Malchi Bayashani, Bobabrisi Maromim, Umehan Bo Shabo Baroma, Vihi Hoisa Sibas Nefilos and Biodom. Right? This is the beginning of our downfall. Vizemus Karbidivri Rabosenu. You can find it in Chazal's Umafursam Basforim. And you can also find it in history books in Yosifon Perik Samachay, chapter 65. The point being of the whole thing, right? The point being that we, we, we brought it on ourselves. Okay? And therefore, you have this highly original uh, interpretation of the Meshach Chachma, which is very thought provoking. And that is. How could a city like Yerushalayim, which was so amazing, fall down? The answer is, they kissed up to the Medinas. They kissed up to the Romans. They invited the Romans in. And then the Romans eventually took over and killed us. So, you know, is this a political commentary of a Meshach Chachma around 1910, whatever, 1920? Watch out for the European civilization or something like that. Don't bring it into your life, or not. I mean, that's interesting historical speculation. But look how he locates the original problem in that way. They're saying, now mind you, oh, with this I'll conclude. They say, Bayashini was called the Sinachinon. What's Sinachinon? So I always say, uh, and I think people misunderstand it usually. They think Sinaschinim is like, eh, 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 you know, like two girls in Basiaka or whatever. I think Sinaschinim, Pashib Shah means there was a civil war when the Jews massacred each other by droves and tortured each other. And how could it be to the point that Jews do one to the other? The answer is the Sinaschinim. So, in other words, the term Sinaschinim is not really adequate to describe the, the depths of depravity that Jews sunk into in their mutual internal sign warfare and mutual in turn sign massacres. But um, you can learn also that the sin that they're referring to is Mamash what the Meshachach was talking about over here because the beginning of the Chorim was the bringing in the Romans. What brought in the Romans? The two brothers were quarreling with each other who should be king, who should be high priest. That was the sin You understand? 
the two brothers battling for power unscrupulously, you know, even to the point of wrecking the whole Judaism just so I should prevail over my brother. That's the sin of Schinnon. Right? Notice this disunity to a crazy degree. That's the sin of Schinnon. And that was the Sibas Nefil Oseinu. So you got to watch out when you bring others into your camp and others into your culture to be able to um, decide issues which really we should decide among ourselves. It's uh, pretty powerful uh, and very thought-provoking. Like I say, I think it puts a, an interesting spin on the whole idea of the Chorban and how it applies to us nowadays in terms of what outside influence do we bring in to help us decide matters which we should really toss around respectfully and debate among ourselves. It's a it's a very um, thought-provoking concept. Anyway, I just wanted to share that. Uh, I thought it's unusual to take a look yourself at the beginning. It's the very first Meshach Chachma in Eicham. Maybe you are not aware of the fact that the Meshach Chachma is not only on the Chumash, but also on the Megillus. And you look and you'll see in your set that it's so. And uh, there's other stuff there as well. And anyway, with that, I hope everybody have an easy fast. I am hoping, I haven't worked it out yet, to, uh, I'm doing the keynotes as I do every year in a show in Baltimore. That's a three, four hour business, obviously. And usually I have it um, live streamed or something, but I don't know if it'll work out this year. But either way, you can check it out on Sunday morning if you're interested. Um, the best way to do it, I suppose, is there'll be a Zoom thing to hit on. And if you go to my show, which is Beth Abraham Baltimore, Beth Abraham Hertzberg's Baltimore, Beth Abraham Baltimore, I'm sure on the front page, if there is a, a Zoom uh, thing to hit on, it'll be there. That's the best I can say at the moment. Once again, I want to thank uh, Aglub for sponsoring. And uh, I wish everybody a good job and, and an easy fast if I don't see you. Bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.